You can open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 4 this morning. Exodus chapter 4, we will finish chapter 4 today and we'll pick it up uh, in verse 18. So verse 18, we read these words. It says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Then the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that, they had seen, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it shows us. Uh, thank you that even in a very bizarre section of scripture, uh, it is still showing us uh, the gospel and it's showing us just what you've done to reconcile and save sinners to yourself. Uh, I pray today that as we look at this, that uh, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that today you would open their hearts to the gospel and that they would believe and trust in you. Uh, and Father, for us as believers, I pray that we would be encouraged today uh, that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. And so because of that, Father, as we wait our redemption, as we wait your return, and as we go through trials and difficulty, that we can worship in our waiting because of what you've done for us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we said last week that chapter 4 is all about uh, obedience that is rooted uh, in faith. And so what we've seen is that God has shown mercy by choosing a murderer and a failed leader named Moses. And then God then sends Moses on a mission to go and get his people. But like we looked at last week, Moses is a lot like we are, right? Moses has excuse after excuse after excuse for why he can't go get God's people. So the first one he uses back in chapter four is he says, well, the people won't believe me. I mean, what am I going to do because they're not going to believe who I am? And so what he's doing is the same thing that we've all done. And, and what we said last week was, especially if maybe we've grown up in one place for a long period of time, is that we'll use our past to justify our disobedience in the present. So, so what we'll say is, well, they remember who I was, and so they're going to call me a hypocrite, and so they're not going to listen to me, and this is just what Moses is doing. And so what God says is, listen, hey, they'll believe you, and let me tell you why they're going to believe you. Throw your staff on the ground. 
And he does, and it becomes a snake. And then God says, hey, I want you to pick it up, right? I want you to grab it by the tail. Not behind the head where it's safe, but by the tail. I want you to show obedience that's rooted in faith, and I'm going to take care of you. Moses does it. It turns back into a staff. Right? He says, stick your hand in your cloak. He pulls it out. It's leprous. He sticks it back in. It's clean. He says, when you get in front of him, take some water from the Nile. Dump it out on the ground. Right? Obey me and have faith that before it hits the ground, it'll turn into blood. Right? And they will believe you, Moses. Okay? I've got you. I'm going with you. I'll take care of you. But then Moses isn't done. Right? What's he say next? He goes, well, God, I can't talk good. Right? You know, that's the Byron translation. Um, But it works. Right? And so what Moses is doing, again, is the same thing that every one of us at some point in our lives have done, right? He's blaming God for the way that he's made. He's saying, God, you you, you didn't make me to where I could speak or where I could talk, right? We've all done it. We we talked about that last week. And and that great verse in there uh, where where God tells him in chapter 4, verse 11, he said, the Lord said to him, who's made man's mouth? Who's makes him mute or death, or seeing, or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? So in other words, Moses, I made you exactly like I made you. Right? We can't take how God's wired us and blame God and say, hey, because you wired me this way, I can't serve you or I can't follow you. God says, no, I made you exactly like you are for a reason, for a purpose. And then finally, we get to the heart of it all because remember what Moses says after God says that? Moses just says, I just don't want to do it. Send somebody else, God. I don't want to do it. And at that point, the Bible says that God's anger was kindled towards Moses, and God takes away the final excuse. He says, hey, man, your brother Aaron's coming. You tell him what I tell you, he'll tell the people, problem solved, don't worry about it. And what I loved about this whole exchange is that God is patient with Moses. He answers all his objections, and he doesn't try to appeal to his self-esteem and say, hey, buddy, you can do better, or hey, no, there's a winner inside of you. Instead, God says, stop saying, who am I, and start saying, who's with me? God's going to go with Moses. God's going to do all the work, and what he's telling Moses is, is that I want your obedience that's rooted in faith. And it's the exact same for you and I as believers that God has saved us, he's rescued us, he's redeemed us through Jesus, and now he tells us to be obedient, to go into the world, to make disciples, to tell others about him, and that he will go with us throughout the whole process. He says, just be obedient and have faith that I'm the one who will do it through you. Now, what I love about the Bible, and the thing that's probably the most comforting to me, and I hope it is to you, is that the people that we prop up as heroes a lot of times really aren't heroes at all, are they? I mean, when we're kids and and we're in Bible story class and we're doing the flannel board and all that crazy stuff, and we make a big deal about guys like Noah and Moses and David, right? And we tell about all the really good things that they do, which when we're kids, that's good. That's right, okay? But as we get older, we find out that those people really weren't heroes at all, but those people are really a lot more like us than we realize. Like you take our boy Noah, for example. Like, like God says, hey, there's nobody righteous like my boy Noah. And so he saves him. He gives him plans to build an ark. He rescues his family. And then after Noah gets out of the ark, he plants a vineyard, enjoys the fruits of his labor, and passes out naked in front of his family, right? Sounds like some of your family reunions. <laughs> what about King David? I mean, he commits adultery. And then in order to cover that up, he has a guy murdered. And then our guy Moses, right, murders a guy runs off, hides in the desert for 40 years, called by God to go get his people, argues with God, and then he delays his obedience to God, which is still disobedience, even though it's delayed. And the whole thing's a comfort to me because, listen, aren't we the same way? 
Our obedience tends to be slow. Our obedience tends to be on again and off again. Our obedience seems to come in fits and starts. All of us are that way. And then when we finally do obey and say, okay, God, fine, do it your way, and we throw our hands up, we think that the hard stuff's behind us now, right? The hard thing was obeying, and now God's going to give me an easy path. And a lot of times after that, God says, you know, I'm so glad you decided to do it my way. Now you've got a few things to learn. And that's the good news for all of us, right? God's not done with you. That's good news. The hard news is God's not done with you. And see, wherever you're at in the journey, whether you're a new believer, whether you're a mature, devoted follower of Christ, you have to realize, as Philippians 1.6 says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That you've still got a lot of work to go, that God's still working on you and refining you and conforming you to the image of Christ. See, it's not enough to just line up at the start line, right? Some of our kids went to a track meet yesterday. It wouldn't have been enough for them just to line up at the start line. Now, that may have been impressive for some of them just to get to the start line, okay? But that's not enough. Like, if you're going to run a race, getting to the starting line is a good start, but you've still got a whole race left to run. And that's where Moses is at, okay? In verse 18, He's finally thrown his hands up. He's finally said, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way. I'm giving in. And he's at the starting line. And God says, okay, Moses, now you've got a few things to learn on the way. So look with me, if you will, in verse 18. It says, so Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. And he said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So before he can leave, Moses has got to go back and he's got to talk to his father-in-law. Now, that's smart for a couple reasons. One, Jethro's his employer, right? It might be good to give you two weeks' notice. You don't want to just run off and leave. But second, it is his father-in-law, okay? And a lot of commentators at this point are really hard on Moses, like, like, like really hard. Like I, I kind of felt like they were like a little too hard on the guy because they're like, well, Moses goes back to his father-in-law and he lies to him. Well, not really. I mean, he didn't really tell him all the truth, but he didn't lie either, okay? God has just laid a huge burden on Moses. So you can't be, blame him for being just a little bit nervous to go and talk to his father-in-law, right? I mean, men who, who ask the father-in-law for the daughter's hand in marriage, right? That's a nerve-wracking thing. Even still now, sometimes when I've got to go talk to Mariah's dad, I'm like, oh, God, right? It's nerve-wracking. And so you know Moses had to bend that way. You know, uh, hey, uh, Dad, uh, can I call you Dad? No, it's Jethro. Yeah, right, Jethro, right, yeah. Um, can I go to Egypt and take your daughter and your grandsons with me? Uh, I mean, you know, there's serious potential. We could die or I could die or, or all of us could die. I mean, is that cool with you? Right? That, that conversation's probably not going well. And what that's showing you and I is this, is listen, there is a cost to gospel ministry. I mean, if the Lord has called you to something, there's a cost for you, but not only you, but to your family as well. And as believers in this room, we may not be called to a foreign country or to a place where we could possibly die for our faith, but we have all been called to be a light in our community where God's planted us. And so as parents, what that means is that the way we raise our children will look different than surrounding culture. And hear me, that may come with a cost in our little bitty small town to where you're not as cool as the other parents, right? 
But that's the cost of following the Lord. I mean, it may come with the cost of being a parent or a grandparent and seeing your kids or your grandkids called into full-time gospel ministry to a difficult part of the world where they could lose their lives. And you as a parent or your grandparent having to let them go. See, when Christ calls us to be his disciples and he calls us into his service, that claim is total. He claims lordship over your future, over your family, over your finances, over your hopes, over your dreams. You are all his. And this is what's happened to Moses. His right God has claimed his whole family. And so what's cool about Jethro is, is he may not fully understand what Moses has to go do, but look how he responds. Jethro says, I understand, okay, go in peace, son. Go, you have my blessing. And so Moses goes, and what I want you to notice, and you can underline in verse 20, is it says that he now takes the staff of God with him. Back in chapter 4, verses 2 and 4, it's just called a staff. But now it's changed. So God's called Moses, and he's promised to work by this ordinary staff, mighty things. And it's the exact same thing for Moses. He's still just plain old, can't speak, reluctant Moses. It's the same with you. It's the same with with me. You're still just ordinary, boring old you who lives in Spearman, Texas. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're his. Your identity has changed, and now you're an instrument in the hand of God. And that's exactly what we see taking place with Moses, is that now he is an instrument in the hand of God. That staff is an instrument that God is going to use to work amazing things, all right? Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. All right, Moses, go to Pharaoh. Perform all the miracles in front of him, just like you're going to do for the elders. That's the start. That's what you're going to do. And then here comes one of the major themes of the book of Exodus, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So from this point on in the book, that phrase will come up 18 times in the coming chapters. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it here today. We'll cover it at length in chapter 7. All right? But, but, but what I want you to understand is that God was, far, was sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. But he was not sovereign in a way that removes Pharaoh's own personal responsibility. Okay? So he's sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, but not in a way that removes Pharaoh's personal responsibility. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says it's a divine hardening according to a rotten will, not in opposition to a humble disposition. Okay? And you have to understand that. So it's not like Pharaoh's going, oh God, oh Adonai, oh sovereign, holy one. I really want to do the right thing here, God. I really want to let your people go. That's really what I want to do. And then God goes, no, not going to let you do it, pal. No soup for you. You're not doing it. You're denied. See, that's not what's going on here. So, So Pharaoh is hardening his heart on one level, but God is also promising to harden his heart. What that means is that God is always bigger than you and I think. We've said this before, we can't put him in a box. But then if you think about it, this has to be a comfort to Moses as well. Moses is scared to death. 
And here God is saying that the exodus from beginning to end was going to be a part of my sovereign plan, that God is going to be the one to do all the work. Moses, you be obedient. I'll take care of the rest. And in verses 22 and 23, God says to Pharaoh that that Israel is my firstborn son, and I say, let my son go that he may serve me, and if not, I'll kill your firstborn firstborn son. So there's two things I I want you to see in these two verses. So first, God's sovereignty includes our sonship. So so God hardened Pharaoh's heart to prove his love for his children. Like like if you think about Israel, they, they had very little to be proud of from a worldly point of view. But as we'll find out later, God will say that, listen, you were the smallest of all the nations, but yet I chose you. So Israel was the son of God's choice. So at the deepest level, the Exodus is a story about God's love for his son. It's the story about a loving God who rescues his children so that they can be together. But what I want you to notice is in verse 23 is that the opposite of bondage is not autonomy. See, so often in our culture, we think that we've been freed from something, and now it's autonomy. I can do what I want. I can live however I want. I can can do anything. But that's not what the Bible's teaching us here, that the opposite of bondage is not autonomy, but service. So God says, let my son go so that he may serve me. So being a Christian, for example, is not setting aside one burden so that you can be free to do whatever you want. No, you set aside the heavy burden of enslavement to sin for a burden that is light and a yoke that is easy in the service of a better master. So God is a loving father who will rescue his people and set them free to serve a God who is for them and not against them, right? So that's the first thing. But the second thing we see is this, is that we see the principle of a son for a son. So Pharaoh, you've enslaved my son. You've mistreated him. Now, I'm going to give you the opportunity to let him go, Pharaoh, but if you don't do it, it's your son for my son. And there's a connection here. See, because we're talking about God's son, then we're talking about Pharaoh's son, and then get to verse 24, we're going to talk a little bit about Moses' son. So verse 24 says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Bizarre story. All right? Kind of weird that it's just stuck right in there. Doesn't seem like it goes. Now, let me put it this way. I'm going to tell you this. There's so much we don't know about this story. Like tons that we don't know about this story. So first, who's him in verse 24, right? If you have an NIV, it translates that as Moses. But if you have an ESV, it's probably more accurate because it translates it uh, ambiguously. So some people think the him is Moses. Some think it's his son, Gershom, right? Since we talked about God's son and Pharaoh's son, it only makes sense that that's Gershom, that that's Moses' son. How did God try to kill him, right? I mean, he's God. If he wanted to kill him, he could have killed him. So why is he trying to kill him? So was Moses having a seizure? Was the son having a seizure? Did the angel of the Lord come down? Were they having a wrestling match like Jacob did? I mean, when the world's a bridegroom of blood, for crying out loud, it sounds like a Stephen King movie. And these are the kind of verses like Bible 
Commentators love them, right? Because they can just rub their hands together and go, man, I can make some money off of trying to figure this thing out. And I read a ton of commentaries. I read a bunch of articles over this passage. And honestly, we really don't know all the details, okay? We don't. Everybody has different theories or versions of really what's going on. There's some truth in all of them, right? But what we do know is what God's trying to show us, okay? So I'm going to give you my best attempt at after what I feel like God's trying to show us through after I've studied, okay? So, so first off, let's answer the question, who's God trying to kill? A good deal of scholars think, and I think I agree with them, God is trying to kill Moses at this point, okay? And the reason why God is trying to kill Moses is because Moses has failed to circumcise his son. Now, why? We don't know. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he thought, hey, I'll get around to it. Maybe it was just not something the Midianites uh, agreed with. I, I don't know. We don't know. Whatever it was, he didn't do it. So why is this a big deal? Well, remember, the sign of God's covenant with his firstborn son, Israel, was the sign of circumcision. Back in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 11, this is what God told Abraham. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between you and me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. So understand, a covenant is what happens at a wedding when the bride and groom turn, they face one another, and they exchange vows, right? When that happens, that is covenantal language. It's not contractual. It's covenantal, right? So for better or worse, like, honey, this could go really bad for us. I'm just letting you know, right? And if it does, it doesn't matter. I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. That's covenant language, right? Sickness and health. So if everything about your physical ability, if everything that makes you who you are goes away, I'm not running off. I'm with you in sickness and in health. For rich or poor, right? Baby, we come into a lot of money and we got a mansion and we're sitting in our lawn chairs out front drinking tea together, okay? If I choose to stay in ministry the rest of my life and that's all we got, then baby, we're together, okay? Here we go. See, it's not contractual, it's covenantal. The sign is exchanging vows and exchanging rings. So the sign between God and his people was the shedding of blood. It's that God wants us to acknowledge the weight and the cost of sin, but then he also wants us to see the beauty of forgiveness. See, inside the covenant, there's grace, there's forgiveness. Outside the covenant... There's separation, there's judgment, there's death. Genesis 17, 4 makes it clear. Anyone who does not do this, 14, excuse me, shall be cut off, right? Now breathe real quickly, okay? The sign of the covenant now for new believers is baptism, okay? When you stand in front of the church, you're letting a local body of believers, right? And I'm going to be clear on that. As a firm believer in the local church, this doesn't happen at church camp. It doesn't happen at a retreat. It happens in front of a local body of believers, you're letting them know that, hey, I used to play for Team Satan, now I've changed jerseys and I'm with Jesus and I want all you people to know that this is who I'm following now, right? That's the sign of the covenant now. So do you see the problem? Moses had failed to obey God. God wants obedience rooted in faith. Moses had not obeyed. Moses is gonna go to the Pharaoh and say, hey, obey God, when Moses himself had not yet obeyed. 
Again, Kevin DeYoung tells us that the exodus may have been a job for somebody with a speech impediment. It was not a job for someone with an obedience impediment. Now, here's where it gets crazy. It said, apparently Zipporah knew exactly what was happening, and she takes a flint knife, and she performs the surgery. Like, all week, I've been thinking about that poor kid. Hey, Mom, what do you got a knife for? Oh, my gosh, right? Like, that had to have been what was happening. When she's done, she throws the bloody results at Moses, saving Moses' life, and then she makes this really bizarre declaration. You're a bridegroom of blood to me. Jury's out, once again. Million different people think a million different things here, but, but what she's saying is something to the extent of this, is by means of blood, I've rescued my bridegroom. See, she acts to save Moses. Their son receives the sign of the covenant. What else is going on here? Most commentators agree that it's pointing us towards another incident that's going to come in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, the angel of the Lord will come and kill the firstborn of all who did not have the blood spread over the doorpost of their home. So the word touched in verse 25, when it says she touched his feet, it's the same word that's used in Exodus 12, 22 to describe putting blood on the doorpost. So in other words, God's wrath was turned aside. God's wrath was propitiated or satisfied by blood. And what that does for you and I now is that it points us forward to the blood that was shed once and for all on the cross by Jesus Christ for all who put their faith and trust in him. See, this is the gospel right here. Blood shed and blood applied, and the one to whom the blood is applied is rescued from the wrath of God. Jay read it this morning in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, remember? The satisfying of wrath is what that means, for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, he loves to save from sin. He loves to forgive sin. He loves to let us put sin in the past so that we can serve him freely. But listen, God calls us, but calling is not an excuse for us to be compromised. And that's what he's trying to teach Moses right here. See, Moses needed to learn. And listen, we do too. And I start with the dads, right? Is that what our families need most from us dads is our personal holiness, is our personal walk with the Lord's. Mom, what our families need from you is your personal holiness. What you need from me as a pastor is my personal holiness, right? What you need at work is your personal holiness to show those people that you work with, students, what your classmates need is your personal holiness. Me, a walk of integrity with the Lord. Moses hadn't done that, okay? And so God said, we've still got a lesson to learn here, Moses. And that's why he shows up in verse 24. Verse 27. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction... They bowed their heads and they worshiped. I want you to notice how anticlimactic all this is. I mean, for all of Moses' worrying and objections and arguing with the Lord, he shows, Aaron shows up, meets him in the desert. 
He tells him what God said. They go tell the elders. Aaron tells them what God said. Moses does the signs. They believe. They bow their heads. They worship. Wouldn't you know it? Everything happened exactly the way that God said it would happen. I mean, we worry about so many things, don't we? I mean, I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the king, okay? Don't, I, I'm the king fretter. But we worry about so many things, and oftentimes, they're really never as bad as they, we think they are. Amen? <laughs> I mean, look at the news. Everybody's worrying themselves silly over the coronavirus. I've been worried about it, right? I have a child with a compromised immune system. That seems to be the people it's getting. So I've been a little nervous about it, right? And, and, and we worry about so much, but all the while, God's calling us to rest in and trust him that he sees the end from the beginning. And so often what you and I do, even as believers, is that we live out the future before it gets here. <laughs> Again, Kevin DeYoung tells us that's exactly what anxiety is, living out the future before it gets here. Jesus himself said, you can't add one more hour to your life by worrying, so rest in him. Moses had to learn that too. For all my fretting and worrying, man, this really wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And he's intentional to show how anticlimactic the whole thing is. But my favorite part's in verse 31. Read with me one more time. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Now check this out. The people haven't even been set free yet. They're still in bondage. Pharaoh's still in charge. They're still waiting on their deliverance. But while they wait, notice what they do. They bow their heads and they worship. They worship in the waiting. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? That, that all of us at some point will be suffering people. At some point, you and I will care for suffering people. And what we want to do a lot of times is that we want to rush through the suffering so that we can look back and see God's providence in all the pain, right? We want to look at Romans 8, 28, and it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But the problem with that verse is, is that God doesn't give us a timeline when all those things are going to work together for good, does he? And sometimes it takes a while to get to the point where we can trust God and where we can take him at his word. He said it takes time as we walk with suffering people to help them see the good in what God's working in their lives. See, the children of Israel's situation hasn't changed, but just knowing that God had visited and seen their affliction, it produced worship in their hearts. So what about us as believers, right? I mean, as believers, will we worship in our waiting? So, so maybe you're, you're in here and you would say, man, I'm waiting for a marriage to get better. Will you worship as you wait? I'm waiting for a spouse to come to faith. Will you worship while you wait? I'm waiting for that job. Will you worship while you wait? I'm waiting for test results. Can you worship while you wait? I'm, I'm waiting for chemo or radiation or something else to be done. Can you worship while you wait? I'm waiting for a wayward child to come back to the faith. Will you worship in the waiting? And see, listen, as we wait on this side of the cross, we have more reasons to worship than the children of Israel did at this point, don't we? We do. See, Remember earlier, God set a son for the son, 
right? He said, Israel's my son. You don't let my son go. I kill your son. That's how it works. Now, if you know the Old Testament at all, you know that God's son Israel was terrible. They were faithless. And just as Moses had broken the covenant with his son, so Israel would repeatedly break the covenant. And so God would have to send another son to save Israel. See, he's already set the principle, a son for a son. He tells Israel, you've proven to be a covenant breaker. I saved you the first time by killing Pharaoh's son. That won't work this time. The only way to save my son Israel is to send my son Jesus. And I want you to see the parallels. In Exodus 4.19, God says, hey, Moses, those who are seeking to kill you, they're dead. You can go home. In Matthew 2.20, God's speaking to Joseph. What does he tell him? Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So remember, Jesus' family fled to Egypt to get away from Herod. So both to Moses and to Jesus, God says, your enemies are dead. You can go home. And in Matthew 2.15, he quotes Hosea 1.1 by saying this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that out of Egypt I called my son. See, Matthew was saying that that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus and his family when they came up out of Egypt. What Hosea was talking about was God's son Israel being set free, yes, but he was also talking about Jesus being a new Moses but even more than that, Jesus will be the true Israel who will do what the original Israel failed to do. Moses was saved by the shedding of blood, and a thousand years later, God would not send an imperfect deliverer like Moses, but one that was faithful to the end. One who would come and be the sacrificial son to save wayward sons and daughters like you and I. See, do you see that today? Do you see that Jesus has come and done what you could not do? It should have been us on the cross, but instead Jesus said, I'll take your place. My blood will be shed so that the wrath of God could be turned aside so that you could have a relationship with me. And so maybe you've heard that message today for the first time, and maybe here in a few moments we're going to stand and sing. And so will you stand and worship for the first time as a believer in Jesus Christ? And for those of us in the room who are believers, will you worship in your waiting? So, so no matter where you are or what life has thrown at you, you have a father who sent his son to rescue you from your sins. That is good news. We can worship because the Lord has visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. We can worship because the Lord has seen our afflictions and he has not forgotten us. So if you would, please bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, I, I thank you today for what you've done to save us in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you make it very clear that it is only through the shedding of blood that we can have our sins paid for and have forgiveness. And we thank you that Jesus has done that. And so today I pray for, for those in this room that maybe have never put their faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done on the cross and that maybe today as the gospel was shared and proclaimed that for the first time, that message has gripped them and gotten a hold of their heart and that today as we get ready to stand, that they will stand and sing today for the first time as a believer in Jesus.
Father, for the rest of us, I thank you that you have seen our suffering, you've seen our affliction, that again, you're not a God who is immune to our pain, but a God who leans in. A God through the person of Jesus Christ has come and taken our greatest problem, which is not all the things that go on outside of us, but our greatest problem, sin upon himself. So that now as we walk through difficulty and pain and as we go through suffering in this life, as we walk with others through suffering, we can know that we have a God who sees us and hears us, that we can worship in the waiting. And so I pray that as we stand to sing, that those of us as believers would stand and we would be a people who worship because of what you've done for us. Thank you for all that you've given us. Be with us now as we sing, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would please